Okay, let's turn to 1 Samuel 24, please. 1 Samuel 24. Let me read it to us and then we'll, we'll pray and get going. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. And he came to the sheep pens along the way, and a cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. And David and his men were far back in the cave, and the men said, This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you, for you to deal with him as you wish. And David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Well, afterwards, David was conscious stricken. He was cut to his heart for having cut off a corner of his robe. And he said to his man, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the Lord's anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. I'm sure they wanted to. And Saul left the cave and went his way. Then David went out of the cave and called to Saul, my Lord, the king, And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. And he said to Saul, why do you listen when men say, David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, Saul, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on my Lord, because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. See, there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. Verse 14, against whom has the king come out to Israel to get? Who are you pursuing? A dead dog? A flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. And when David finished saying this, Saul asked, is this your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. You are more righteous than I. Like the last one to figure that one out. He said, you have treated me well, but I have treated you so badly. You have just now told me about the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me 
by the Lord that you will not kill off my descendants or wipe out my, my name uh, from my father's family. So David gave an oath to Saul. Then Saul returned home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Let's pray. Lord, I am grateful to be here and rest in you today with all of these uh, wonderful people, friends, family, that are all seeking you together. We've devoted this time to draw near to you corporately. And I pray that you would be pleased and that you would draw near to us as we draw near to you. Lord, we um, all have corporate needs. We also have individual needs. And Lord, we in faith are bringing them to you. And we, um, this passage, Lord, has a lot to do with hands. Lord, we open our hands. Lord, take what you, what you will. Lord, we're yours. We don't close our fists around anything. This morning, we are surrendered to you. Would you speak, God? And use me, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we've been going through the book of 1 Samuel on Sunday mornings. And in doing this, we've been discovering that this book is full, teeming full of life and ancient lessons of life. Um, there's huge biblical themes throughout this book. It's like, a, it's like a, a, uh, an ocean that's just filled with life underneath of it. We've got corruption and sin. Learned all about that. Um, we've learned about true worship and true devotion to God and how that has the power to change a nation in Samuel. We've learned about the power of the word of God, the power of God's word, God's powerful redemption and how, he, and how we can access it. Themes like God's faithfulness to his corrupt people, very corrupt people, and yet God is still devoted and still holy. The promise of a new anointed leader, a Messiah, has come out of this book. Hannah in chapter two, Samuel's mom, prayed about an anointed ruler that would come. Well, today we come to another theme that hits on some of the same ones, but also hits on something that all people, being made in the image of God, all of us, we long for it, we strive to have it, we actually need it, we have to use it, and it's our need, our capacity for power. Power. And you can see the theme, and I think you probably noticed when I was reading, I was emphasizing how many times the phrase, my hand, your hand, established in my hand, was just riddled throughout the passage. I, I, I counted about 11 or 12 times that it was there. And in the ancient world, and all throughout the Bible, the hand, especially the right hand, is a symbol of one's power and someone's ability to bring dominion to a certain domain or to a space or to impose rule over God's creation. Um, it measures your influence, how well you manage things, the power that you have. Um, and today we're going to learn all about that. Indeed, the Bible uses the phrase first and foremost to describe the power and authority of God himself. Uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 2, Moses is speaking about the men of war that are in the camp that the Lord is against and this is how he describes it. He says, the Lord's hand was, was against them until he had completely eliminated from them from the camp. The Lord's power, his hand to bring dominion, subjection, his will was against that community until it came under, under his authority. 
Uh, David later penned in the Psalms. He said, but I trust in you, Lord, and I say, you are my God. My times are in your hands. I'm in your power. Deliver me from the hands of my enemy, from the power of them, from those who pursue me. So someone in the Bible with a strong hand in the Bible is someone with a degree of power, someone who's been given influence to impose either their own will or the will of God or the will of somebody else. It can be used both positively and negatively. Now, because we are made in the image of God, let me give you the, theology, the theological story behind this. Because we're made in the image of God and because of the warping effects of sin, every human being, every one of you here, both needs and struggles with the idea of power. It's this great tension and friction that's going on in all of us. We need it, we want it, we need to use it. All of us need to exert power. In fact, uh, the way that humans get things done and accomplish their uh, tasks and purposes and will is that you've been given influence or power to exert in your family, at your work, um, over creation. Uh, it goes back to the very beginning. I mean, look at verse uh, uh, Genesis chapter 1 which we'll be going over in our hermeneutics class this Friday, so this is a little freebie for you here. You can come prepared. Then God said, let us make man in our image. That's tselem in the Hebrew. After our likeness, that's demuth. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the, of the heavens. Let them have what? Dominion, power, baked right into who we are. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heaven, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. He blessed this power that's... Um, that's ontologically connected with the essence of God. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every creeping thing that moves on the earth. Humans are to exert God's power over the earth. That's the idea. The idea is that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, but it was without form and without void. And so God went to work bringing form and bringing inhabitants. And then he creates these creatures in his image to partner with him, his vice regents that would go out throughout all the earth, bringing God's dominion, his kingdom, not just his images, but also imaging him everywhere that he, they would go, bringing his, his worship and God's kingdom, basically making the earth an, uh, an Eden, his temple, a cosmic temple whereby everything and everyone would praise and take their rightful place and worship and praise to God. That's what we try to create a little piece of here on Sunday mornings, right? We're here subdued to him, taking our rightful place. Mankind was to act as God's vice regents on the earth for God's good purpose. So mankind has to execute power. You need it. You absolutely need it. It's a huge part of the divine story of redemption. God is going to use the power given to mankind to make the world right again. That's the story. God's making the world right through empowering you, through empowering his human partners. 
But ironically, through a lust for more power, God-level type of power, mankind, Adam and Eve, fell. And from that point on, their God-given desire for and use of power was warped and corrupt. Now we hate the word. It's immediately associated with something bad, something twisted, something corrupt. Instead of using it in the service to God and to others, as Jesus said, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself, that's the true direction of our power and projection of our power. Instead of that, sin made man lust for power so they could use it and build their own kingdom, imaging ourselves to the world. This is precisely what we see in Saul, in our story. His view of and lust for power and use of power is eating him alive. It's eating him alive. David, as we know redemptively, is God's new start. He's like the new Adam. And God is going to empower David to do what mankind was always meant to do. David is gonna set up a kingdom a kingdom of people who are devoted to Yahweh, a kingdom that's marked by God's righteousness and justice that will eventually bring all the world to itself on Mount Zion and all the world will be engulfed in this incredible kingdom. That's the story. That's where we're headed. But in order to do this, God first has to teach David about true power and more about what we can call artificial power. Um, We're gonna learn three things this morning. This passage shows us the power of true power. The power of true power. It has the power to overturn kingdoms, okay? It also shows us the secret of true power. It shows us the secret of true power and it shows us how to get it and how to use it properly. So three things, it's gonna show us the power of true power, it's gonna show us kind of the stuff of true power, the secret of true power, and then it's gonna show us how to use it properly. Was he getting his Bible? What a saint. So the episode starts out, and here's what's interesting about this. The episode starts out with an obvious juxtaposition here of power. You've got Saul, a man endowed with official power, exuding incredible, vast amounts of powerful resources. Um, He has an an administration of servants, people that do what he wants to be done. He has apparently a very um, reliable spy network that continually um, finds David, accurately finds David. Maybe this is the first generation of the Mossad, for all all I know. And he's got this army of 3,000 men. He gathers 3,000 people 3,000 men to go and search for David. He seems to have almost total control over how he uses this army. He can make, apparently, unilateral decisions when it comes to this army. The narrative speaks of no administrative official that says to him, excuse me, Saul, how are we justifying the use of all these resources and manpower when we have a shred of evidence that David poses any threat at all? No one speaks up. There's no evidence that David is even a threat. In fact, there's evidence that David has only acted in the, in the national interest of Israel. He's a hero. Yet no one questions him. I, well, almost none. The last guy that questioned him was Saul's own son. And he hurled a spear at him when he, when he dared question his father's authority. 
That's the state of mind that Saul was in. And then you've got David in the story. You've got Paul with, or Saul with all this power, and then you've got David, a man on the run, sleeping in caves from a poor family, from an insignificant little village, Bethlehem, with very little resources. He has 600 men, but they're severely outnumbered against 3,000 men, obviously. Severely outnumbered, and they're on the run. And yet, I want you to notice something here. Who's the one that's threatened here? Someone say Saul. Saul, Saul yes, new guy in the corner. Uh, yes, Saul is the one that's threatened. David is not um, flashy. He doesn't have brute strength. And this strikes you immediately when you read the story. He doesn't have bright strength, you know, brute strength. He's weak. He's on the run. And yet, Saul is so utterly threatened by him that he amasses this army of 3,000 guys to go, that their top priority is to hunt David down. Saul knows that David actually, even though he doesn't have official power or what we could call artificial power, Saul knows, he's got a sense, a deep sense, maybe ever since he's met young David, that there's something about David, a personal power, that has the power to threaten and overthrow his entire kingdom and undo his legacy, and he's not wrong. He's not wrong. Someday, that's exactly what will happen. This nobody from Bethlehem has Saul's attention. So here's the man, Saul, who is officially in control of the nation and yet who is utterly out of control of himself. He's a very weak person. Saul is the one in control and yet he's so utterly out of control of himself. He's unnerved by David who has so much power, so much personal power, even though he has no official power yet. Someone with this level of, and I guess what I'm trying to say, the power that the Bible is, is, is talking about is someone with this level of personal power, someone that has this level of moral weight and moral character and integrity, someone who's at peace with themselves and content before God, has nothing to prove, nothing to gain. Have you met someone like this? They kind of have a, a gravitational pull. When they walk in the room, they're so settled, they're so... Uh, strengthened within themselves before God that people want to follow. People feel comfortable in their presence. People go to them. People end up asking them questions. Those types of things. They want to know what they have to say. This is David. David's got this vibe going on and it's so quiet yet so loud, so powerful that Saul knows, okay, God's anointing's on this young man's life and this, he has the power to take me out. Jesus had the same quality about him. We find this, of course, fulfilled in the story of Jesus. From the moment he arrived on the scene, kings were threatened. A little baby, an infant, helpless, born in a cave. No place to, no room for him anywhere. From a little peasant town, Nazareth, obscure pointless little village, Nazareth, comes to Bethlehem, and yet Herod is releasing an army to kill every boy two years and, un and under. Has to, Jesus has to run from his life, for his life. Later, he threatens people wherever he goes, power structures wherever he goes. Jesus has no official power in his ministry. 
No one, we don't see any point where someone official has ordained him and said, go about it and given him some kind of position of authority. It's just his presence, his power to come in, disrupt, to be comfortable in himself, to say that's not actually quite right, to advocate for those, to use his power to uplift the weak. It threatened people everywhere, especially the religious elites. They were so incredibly threatened by him. Jesus had this same quality, and yet it wasn't official. And I guess one of the main lessons is here, obviously, I think that we can respect the Bible when the Bible says, there, even though someone can have official power, it does not mean that they have personal power. And that's a scary, a leader in that position is a scary leader to be following. Someone that's been endowed with, dubbed with official power, artificial power, and yet do not have, does not have the personal power to, ma- to like a, a hand that matches the glove that it's been given, cannot fill that in, makes a very dangerous leader, a very dangerous leader. And yet, to flip that coin over, this also shows that not everybody with official power, yet they have, there's people that have great strength and great power. Maybe you. Maybe you've not been given official, anything, official title or a position or whatever that might be. And yet, the Bible would say over and over again, there's a power that God wants to impart to you from the foundation. It's baked into who you are. There's a certain power that we have of human, as humans that has the strength and the power, the quiet strength to really subdue and overthrow corruption and kingdoms and to make a big difference in your family, in your, in your work, in your life, wherever your feet would tread. Maybe you feel obscure. Oh, take heart. This is, where the, this is the stuff of power. But there's a secret to using it. There's a secret to true power here. Again, a theme that runs all the way through. Let me show you in verse five. Afterwards, David was stricken he was conscious stricken or some of your translations say he was cut to the heart for having cut off a corner of Saul's robe and he said to his men the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master the Lord's anointed or lay my hand on him for he is the anointed of the Lord it's hard to understand David here because on the one hand he's agreeing I do have power I do have power to use here. But on the other hand, he's stricken when he uses it. God does not stop him. God does not uh, put an angel with a flaming sword in front of Saul as he's doing his business in the cave and say, stop. He's got the power and God allows him to use it if he wants and yet his conscience is stricken him. Why does he feel so bad for simply cutting off Saul's robe? I mean, his men wanted him to do more than that. They were probably disappointed that he didn't kill Saul. And yet David is stricken for something much, much less. He's convicted for something much less. Well, to fully understand what's happening here, you have to understand the author Samuel, the author of Samuel's use of a literary prop. I haven't, I haven't highlighted it to you guys yet because I was waiting for this moment because I feel like it really culminates here. There's a literary prop that we find throughout this book, a, a, um, something that will trigger your mind, that the author is hoping will trigger your mind to, to understand something here, and it's that little word, robe. 
robe. The author's been using this prop of a robe since chapter 2. Do you remember? In chapter 2, little Samuel was dedicated to the temple. And what did his mom bring him every year? A robe. A robe that he would grow into. This really comes into culmination. It really shows us a little bit more. Later, it was the tearing of Saul's robe that confirmed to Samuel that God was ripping the kingdom away from Saul. You remember that really dramatic point? It's in chapter 15, verse 27. It says, as Samuel turned to go away, remember Samuel's so frustrated with Saul, he didn't do what God wanted him to do again, didn't use his power correctly again, took it into his own hands, took power into his own hands, and Samuel's arguing with him, and he says, look, God's done with you, man, and he turns away, and, and remember, Saul grabs his robe and Samuel's robe is torn from the movement the momentum and Samuel whips around and looks Saul in the eye and says God's tearing the kingdom away from you he felt like a prophetic moment when that happened an energy happened when it ripped God's taking it away from you Jonathan took his robe off um, if you remember Jonathan took his robe off and put it on David remember that signifying that God was going to give David the kingdom. Jonathan is the heir to the king. He's, he's next in line. But Jonathan sees the power, the personal presence. He senses the anointing, the moral weight of David. And so he takes off his robe and puts it on David, an act of saying, the kingdom will be yours. And now in the cave, David sneaks up and uses his hand, his power, to rip the kingdom away from Saul. Now you're understanding maybe why his conscience was cut a little bit. He knew exactly what he was doing. Even though he has not physically harmed Saul, he has by his own hand, that's what I want, by his own hand, cut off the kingdom from the Lord's anointed, from Saul. And here's the point. Here's the secret to power. David knows that artificial power is self-made. Please know that. If you're taking notes, write it down. Very important hinge that power moves on in the Bible. David knows that artificial power is self-made. That means it's marked by control. It's marked by manipulation. It's marked by anxiety and therefore results in an abuse of power. This kind of power is insecure it's ran by insecurity and it leads to, to disintegration and even spiritual and mental illness. It's this kind of leadership that corrupted and destroyed Saul. You remember Saul, when he first got going, he's a great guy, humble, lovely man, really great. But power began to erode his character like acid to a metal just starts taking it away. And now you read Saul now and you think, what happened to the other Saul? He's gone. He's been completely taken over by his lust for more to make up for his insecurity. So David understands to take the kingdom like this is to become a leader like Saul. 
to take the kingdom of his own power, to manipulate, to control, to crane it out, to make it happen, is to become a king just like Saul. David, in Jesus' words, David would gain the world and yet forfeit his soul in doing this, in doing it like this. True power, the inner power, because we're seeing an external power with Saul, we're seeing an inner power with David. The power of a devoted, consecrated life is, if you're taking notes, a surrendered power. Artificial power is self-made. Inner power is a open-handed, surrendered, released, trusting Peaceful power. David is in essence saying there is only one true power and that one is God. Therefore, God is the one who will establish the kingdom in my hand that's open. My hand, I dare not do it myself. I dare not try to make this happen myself. This is really... An earmark, I think, of maybe, maybe I mean, maybe we could, you, you know, think it through with me. Maybe every sin. Um, remember the, the, well, let's go back. Let's see if we can find it in the first sin. In Genesis chapter three, it says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, well, we may eat of the tree, of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden, neither shall you touch it or else you'll die. But the serpent said to the woman, you won't die. You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delight to, a delight to the eyes and that the tree was, was, was to be desired to make one wise, I'm assuming she used her hand and she took the fruit and ate it and also gave some. She influenced her husband, gave it to somebody else, relationally used her power over others, over another, and he ate. In the end, it came down to, Nicole and I were talking over this passage last night, and we discovered together that at the end, it came down to trust. I'm either going to trust God and surrender to the lines and boundaries that he has drawn for me, or I'm gonna trust myself, not believe that he has my best interest at heart, and take matters into my own hands and my own power to make this happen maybe it's even a, a good promise a lot of scholars debate um, that God it wasn't wisdom that God was holding back it was the way she went about it that was wrong wisdom is the fear of the Lord wisdom is um, a, a big thumbs up in the book of Proverbs there's a lady wisdom that's talking and trying to give out her fine jewels and her sayings to everybody in Proverbs it's not that it's the way she went about it nothing wrong with knowing good or evil but she took matters into her own hands David here has been given a promise oh well let's think of another let's see if we can trace this through think of Abraham right 
God gave Abraham and Sarah a promise that they would have a son. And that from this son, uh, all the world would be blessed. So not only was this a gift to them, this son was a gift to the world. And all the world would be blessed through this family. Well, it didn't happen. And so what did they do? They took matters into their own hands. They said, let's make this, God needs a little bit of help. Let's make this promise happen our way in an artificial kind of a way, in an illegitimate way. Let's make this happen. And they took matters into their own hands and major damage happened because of that. And God did not recognize Ishmael or choose, even though he loved Ishmael, he didn't choose him for this. David now finds himself in the same, I think, position as his forebearers. There's a very, there's a, it's like a tree in the garden. There's a, there's, a, there's a good and there's an evil thing here. He has a promise and now he's faced with a choice. Do I trust God or do I make this happen by myself? Now think of the tremendous temptation. David is crammed with at least some of his men in the back of a cave as they're, as they're being hunted from 3,000 trained men. I mean, imagine the stress in that. Please do not imagine that David is just calm because he's David. This is enough to unnerve anybody. 3,000 men coming to find you. They, you're on the run constantly, sleeping in caves. I don't know how much time this has been going on, but surely David is thinking, and I know his men are thinking, this is the day that we end this life. No more sleeping in caves. The palace is in sight. This is it. In fact, these men even give him a false promise. They kind of act as the snake in the garden. This is the day that the Lord told you that he'll deliver the enemy into your hand and you can do anything you want with him. We cannot find that quote anywhere in the Bible. They kind of put that there. <laughs> they entered that thought, wrapped it in something spiritual and put it in his, and he fell for it for a little bit. He started going for it. There's a choice. God didn't really, God, this is what God wants. And this shows the greatness of David's power, doesn't it? That it's a, what's the greatness of his power? That it's a surrendered power. He came, David came by the kingdom honestly. We can say it that way. He came by the kingdom surrendered and completely to, uh, over to God. David never needed to worry. Did I make this? Can you imagine later in his, in it, later in his uh, reign, when, all the, when the trouble hits, you, you, you know what we always think. David could have thought, if he'd done this differently, he could have thought, Did I, should I, am I even supposed to be here? Maybe I made this kingdom happen by myself. Maybe this is just what I wanted, and I'm not even supposed to be here, therefore God's against me. My son Absalom is coming against me. Maybe this is God coming against me. But no, David did not have to think that because he knew. He took his hands off the wheel. If I'm so, I was promised to be king, and if I'm supposed to be king, my hands are open. God, you're going to get me there. So I know I'm established that this is you. I never have to question that. Um, and look at this. Look forward to the better than David. In Matthew 26, we see the same surrendered power in, the, in power himself. Jesus is power, he says. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the 12, in another garden, by the way. 
one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. And now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man sees him. This is because, if you didn't know, Jesus did not walk around with a halo on his head and blue, you know, Caucasian eyes. He looked like his followers. And so the temple guard said, which one is it? And Judas said, okay, the one that I go up and kiss, that's, that's the signal. That's how you can identify him. Again, where's the power in that? It's quiet. And he kissed him and Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. What do you hear in that? Surrender, friend, do what you came to do. And they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus, Peter, <clears throat> stretched out his hand and drew his sword and sliced the ear of the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. I'm going to make it happen. And Jesus said, put your sword back in its place. Surrendered power. Put your sword back in its place. Now look it. He says, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send 12 legions of angels? Power. That's power. You know what Jesus is saying to Peter? He's saying, follow me. Follow me and let it go. This is the power that redeemed the world. And that's the quality of true power. Not that, we, not that he could command angels, but that he could and he didn't. That is what the Bible is saying. Here's the Bible saying, this is power. This is power. True power is surrendered power. This is the most, and you guys, this is the most threatening power there is. It doesn't feel that way, but it is. It's the most threatening power there is. Jesus is about to be arrested. He's about to be killed, and he still does not, he still does not feel the need to do anything to thwart it or to control it or to get involved in it. He's remarkably uninvolved. And yet he's got all this power, and yet he's completely surrendered. He allows the machine to eat him up, to grind him to dust. He, he just lets it happen. Someone who doesn't, think of someone who doesn't need to strive to make things happen. It's a dangerous person. It's a dangerous person. Someone who doesn't freak out when things go wrong because they think the whole world is on their shoulders. Someone that freaks out when things go wrong, what does that tell you? It means we've made ourselves too big. We think we're too important at that point. I have to do something or else. If I don't, then. We have this real, Jesus is saying, Jesus, the God of the universe, power himself is saying, I surrender. Someone who is at complete peace, even in a cave, when things aren't going the way that he thought, when the future looks bleak, he can't see what's in front of him, he doesn't know how it's gonna happen, 
This is true power. This is the kind of power that the Bible says will overthrow kings and redeem the world. A surrendered power. How does David come by it? I mean, you've got to ask that. How do you get it? How do you get this kind of power? Well, I, would, I want to say to you, first of all, I want to give you some things that are very practical here. I would say one thing, time with God. And here's what I mean by that. Real time with God. I don't mean... I don't mean like a checklist of things that you do, like read your Bible and, or, or have a, say a, a prayer and you call it time with God. I, that's fine. Those things might be involved. Those things are more like scaffolding to real time with God, to, to, to actual time in his presence. What happens when you're in the presence of God? Does anybody, uh, you know, I remember, well, let me just give you an anecdote. I remember when I was a, a teenager, I was going through, embarrassingly to admit, teenage kind of problems. But for me as a teenager, they were very big kind of problems. You know, teenagers, we, we, they tend to think, wow, the world's going to explode if my friend doesn't like my Instagram post or whatever. It was something like that, and it caused me incredible turmoil in my heart. I remember I had, I lived in, I grew up in McMinnville, Oregon. And in McMinnville, up on a hill there is a cemetery. And I had a little Volkswagen Cabriolet convertible top. Super fun. And I, it was in the summertime. And I drove my little stick shift Volkswagen up to the top of this thing. I had the top down. And I just sat. I listened to worship music and I, I, with a tape, a tape deck. Have you heard of the, you know, this plastic. It's got wheels and ribbon in there. Yeah, it plays music. It's crazy. So anyway, I put that in there, and I listened to some worship music. And after a while, I remember thinking, even though everything, so in this cemetery, it was dusk, and the presence of God descended on my little car in that moment. And even though the problems were still there, there was a sense that glory himself is here with me. What, does the, what do those things matter anymore? You know, it's like, um, I don't have any money on me, but if I, if I had like a penny and if I held it up to my eye really close, it looks really big. It's like my problems. I focus on them. I get into it. it looks, I start getting anxious. But when I pan it back and see all that God is, all of a sudden, it's still there, but it's just a little penny. Peace. God outweighs it. Spending time with God, coming actually into contact with his presence, is a prioritizing experience. You remember what really matters at that moment. In fact, the word glory, kavad, in the Hebrew is the word weight or matter. We, we use the same In fact, we're talking about this with David. He had a certain amount of weight. We use the same kind of phrases. You know, she has more weight. She, she, her words have more weight to them. So I'm gonna, you're saying, I listen to her more because she has a certain amount of expertise. In other words, her word is more important. It outweighs yours because she has more expertise or experience or skill. So she outweighs. You see the language? It, that comes from the Bible. God is the most weighty, important substance in the universe. And when you have an encounter with God, you feel a sense of weightlessness. All of a sudden, you know who really matters in that moment, and you can surrender. This is to be 
a normal thing for Christians. David did this in the, when he was uh, watching his sheep, when he was, he was with God. He felt the awe, the matter, the weight, the, the import of the presence of God, and he could surrender to that. Secondly, this is not a fun one. That was a fun one. That's fun. Let me give you not a fun one. I suggest to you, David got this sense of power by being in the wilderness. There's something about being in the wilderness, and I mean like trying to survive out there, not on like a fun camping trip, but like trying to survive out there. There's something about being in the wilderness that makes you realize just how little control you actually have. All of a sudden, the technology is stripped away. Your body is saying you're hungry and you have no visible means to get that done. All of a sudden, if you've ever been out in the wilderness, you realize, or on a beach, and you're looking at the vast ocean, or out in a boat, and you're looking at the vast ocean, you realize how small and out of control you actually are. In other words, the wilderness, if you play your cards right, and if you surrender, um, you surrender simply because you've got no other option. The wilderness moments in your life are moments to which you have no other options. This is why I'm convinced Jesus said, blessed are the poor. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the, why? Because people who are not poor typically don't have as many re- uh, uh, opportunities or felt falling on God for desperation because they have other options. John Wesley said in one of his sermons, he said, the gospel has the least amount of power in affluent places. And, and he, he went on, you, went on, you go on to read his sermon, he explains that people that have, have, have a lot of affluence have a real, their blessing has actually become a hindrance because they don't feel a need for God. They don't feel a desperation typically. All their things are in order. If they run out of money, they have a card. They, you know, they, there's a lot of things going on that make them feel padded from this wilderness that, that breeds a desperation for God, and he's, then he's there. Uh, you guys remember, the, Paul put it so, so well um, in Romans, actually, I remember this one, Romans 5. He says, not only this, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Blessed are the poor. Notice Jesus doesn't say, blessed the poor will be, because someday they'll get education and money. No, no, he says, right now, in their poor state, blessed are they. I think this is why. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. What are we talking about, character? We're talking about personal power. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. David had to depend on God. He didn't have an option. He had to. And God showed up. Thirdly, David came into the kingdom by losing it. Last point. Look at, I'll just read this last point to you. Uh, this is, I'm going to read verse 8 to the end of it. David went out of the cave and he called to Saul. Look at his, listen to his argument here. It's like a courtroom. He says, my lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated his face to the ground. Uh, What is this? This is an act of surrender, submission, hands open, kill me if you must. This is very vulnerable. Saul could have said to one of his 3,000, go get him, boys. Off with his head right there. 
David takes an enormous risk and he says, why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? It's very kind of David because his men have not really said that David is bent on harming him. These have been words in Saul's mouth. But David is allowing Saul to save face a little bit. This day you have seen with your own eyes that the Lord delivered you into my hands. In other words, I do have power. I do have it. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. And I said, I will not lay my hand on, on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. See my father, a reminder that he's actually the king's son-in-law. He is family. See my father, look at this piece of, of your robe in my hand. I cut off the robe of your, uh, the, the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. In other words, this is hard-clad evidence and proof that I'm completely innocent. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me to take down my life. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me. Notice David is not saying, this is not a, a wussy kind of surrender. David is not saying, yeah, you're right, I've been wrong. No, he's like, no, I'm innocent, and God's coming for you, man. Not me, God's coming for you. But he says, but here's my, an act of volition, but my heart will not touch, my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. He's saying, from your heart proceeds your actions, and my hand will not touch you because my heart is right. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Who are you pursuing, a dead dog, a flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand, your artificial power that he's also given to you. And when David finished saying this, Saul asked, is that your voice, David, my son? Notice Saul is overthrown. He's defeated in this moment. He's humbled. Is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept out loud. You are more righteous than me. Paul is over, Saul, excuse me. Saul is overturned. He's overthrown. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You have just now told me about the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him go away? In other words, this is not the way of the world. This is not the way of true power. When a man finds his enemy, he squashes him. It's a show of, I'm stronger now. I'm top of the heap. That's what Saul's used to. Well, may the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Do you hear that? That's an admission. You will be king, David. I know it. I know it. And it will be established in your hand because of true power. You will fill this glove with your hand. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not kill off my descendants or wipe out my hands from my father's family. David refuses to take control. In fact, David vulnerably gives himself up. He wins by losing. He overthrows Saul's heart, not through a show of strength, but show, through a, a show of strength that's shown through weakness and humility. This is John chapter 19. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, whipped him. 
and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and they thrust it on his head and they arrayed him in a purple what? Robe. Mm -hmm. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him with their hands. And Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus comes out, here's the scene, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Um, most scholars agree that Pilate said to them, Behold the man, because the Jesus that went out to be throg, uh, flogged is now unrecognizable when he came back. They beat him so bad. Sorry, it's. And when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they still weren't satisfied. Crucify him. Crucify him. We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. And when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He's threatened. Here's Pilate, who's got all this power, and he's threatened by a bloody, unrecognizable human that he's just beat to a pulp. So he entered his headquarters and said to Jesus, where are you from? <laughs> but Jesus didn't answer him. So Pilate said to him, will you not speak to me? You ready for this? Do you not know that I have authority to either release you or authority to kill you, to crucify you. I can get this done right now. I say a word, you're either out or I'm going to kill you. And look what Jesus said. You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Jesus is not saying this at his at his best physical moment. He's just been beaten, almost died from that, and yet he's got the clarity, the strength of spirit to keep things in priority, to keep it right. He says, no, actually, he could probably barely breathe, his lung wall probably exposed, all of his mental energy training just to manage the pain, and yet he still can say something so brilliant. He can still say, no, I'm submitting to you because my Father has given you authority. And me, power itself, am submitted to the ultimate power. The man is being slowly and methodically murdered and look how surrendered he is. He's completely yielded. Jesus the Messiah submits himself to the Lord's authority given to Pilate. He doesn't need to do anything, apparently, or control or manipulate. He's completely yielded. He can submit himself completely to the process even when corrupt people are involved. Can we say that? He doesn't have to make God's plan happen. He doesn't freak out when power is in the hands of a tyrant. Neither David nor Jesus freak out when power is in the hands of a corrupt system. But they even give themselves over to it and it eats them alive. Think of our current leaders. Just think of them for a second. Do, do they match? Any of them? 
Or is there manipulation? I'm going to make it happen. Jesus lets the worst happen. He lets the powerful system kill him. And in doing this, he beats the system. He wins by losing. They gain power through, David and Jesus gain power through surrender. I'm going to end with this. This is our practical note. Have this mind in yourselves among you, Paul says, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, closed hand. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, it doesn't end there. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. How did Jesus Christ become king? Cosmic king of the universe, never to be overthrown ever again, an eternal kingdom. How did Jesus become king? By giving it up, surrender. Do you see the the, the pattern here? Power through surrender, life through death. Practical lesson for us who follow Jesus, this is what imaging him looks like. We go back to Genesis chapter one and now it's in the form of of the great commission at the end of Mark. Go into all the nations making disciples, teaching people to to obey, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is what he gives the same, it's a great commission now, but it's the cultural mandate. Go out, my followers, into all the earth and bring everything, use your power. How do we use our power, Jesus? Learn from me. By humility, by serving, by loving, by suffering. This is the power of Christianity that turned the world upside down, that unseated the Greco-Roman powerhouse. Christianity turned it upside down through this behavior of Jesus' followers, people that are following in the same pattern. How does this look in your marriage? How does it look in your, when it comes to raising your children? This is the pattern of life. This is how we exert power. You're supposed to have power. You gotta use it. How do we use it? Serve, love, humility. And it has the power to turn your family upside down. It has the power to infect your workplace. It'll threaten folks. It has the power to change the world.